Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 177. And today in the show, Dan and I are debating the October low. We're talking late October hunting plans. We discuss analyzing specific buck tendencies, and we provide an overview of the latest on CWD. All right, welcome back to another episode of the 100. Oh, this isn't. <laughs> wow. You can't edit it now. No. We're just, start, we're just starting. I've, I've said the 100% Wild Podcast so many times recently. Welcome. That's the other show. This is the Wired to Hunt Podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And uh, thank goodness today it's just me and Dan because obviously I'm not on my A game. Um. But we are going to cover a lot of interesting topics, I think, and I hope. Um, my thoughts are that we try to cover as much as we can related to what's happening right now and what's coming up in the next week or two in our hunting seasons because the last, really since the hunting season has started, we've had a guest on every week, so we really haven't got to spend a lot of time diving into our own stuff. You know, we kind of briefly touched on things in the beginning of each episode. So I thought today, though, we're going to have that time to dive into what we are doing and how that might you know, be able to apply what you're doing in your own spots too. So I want to cover a lot of different topics. I want to talk about our mid-October hunts and thoughts and plans. Um, I want to move forward into the coming weeks and think about the pre-rut, late October into early November, what we're going to be doing, why we're going to be doing it. Um, I'll, of course, be talking about the latest in my hunt for Holyfield. Um want to talk some about analyzing trail camera photos and past encounters, planning surgical strikes, all that kind of good stuff. And then, of course, as we've promised for a few weeks now, um, I also want to spend some time reviewing my learnings from the Michigan CWD Symposium uh, that we've been promising for a while now. So, so I think it's going to be a good one. Uh, it should be a fun one, too, given that it's just me and Dan and we don't need to worry about going off the rails. You know, that's kind of what we do when it's just me and Dan. So I don't know. Do you think that's that's going to work out all right, buddy? I think it's going to work out just fine. Perfect. Um, I want to tell you something. I yeah. accidentally, when texting with a couple of my buddies, a couple of my other hunting buddies, um, for some reason we mentioned your other your podcast the nine finger chronicles 
and right. my phone auto corrected it and it sent it before I realized the mistake. <laughs> and now the, the auto correction of your podcast is now what I will be only calling your podcast by because it's just perfect. Your podcast now and as far as my buddies that you know, Ross and Peter and Corey and Josh uh, and Andy, we all refer to your show as the Nine Ginger Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> That's really how it auto autocorrected? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's actually a decent name. That's pretty pretty appropriate, right? <laughs> right, right. So what do you think? Hey, man. Would you consider switching it? You know, maybe. Um, I just got too much time into this one. I, I can't, it's like, it's like my oldest daughter. Yeah. There's times I wish I could give her back, but <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I got too much money invested in her. So I got to ride her out. And then I just think there's a lot of upside you're going to miss out on. There's so much potential. <laughs> there's a whole untapped market of redheads out there who really want to connect with someone in that way. And I feel like on the iTunes right? charts, when they see the nine ginger chronicles, like you would, you would capture the redhead market. No questions asked. <laughs> But what happens if people like mistake it for hunting and it becomes about cooking, like gingerbread, about pastries and, <laughs> and that kind of stuff? That's I, that's what I don't want to happen. Do, do you have a skill set there? No, I don't. Okay, yeah, you're right. I've heard you talk about how you cook venison for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So Nine Ginger Chronicles, that's my update for okay. the week. Um, okay. All right. What's new with you? Nothing, man. Uh, you know, you know, uh, family and work basically, uh, for this Saturday it rained the entire day, um, in, in Eastern Iowa and Southern Iowa. So I was actually a photographer for a wedding. I do photography on the side. And, uh, so the entire day, Saturday, uh, I was gone from the family doing that. And then, <laughs> yesterday right the best cold front to come through iowa the entire you know entire october um mid-october you know it's one of those still catching these deer from a, a kind of a somewhat consistent bed to feed pattern uh and uh i was at home for it so you know i was gone all day yesterday or on saturday and then i um my <laughs> Like, I don't It's just frustrating. Right. And I know there's so many guys out there that can feel this frustration when, you know, it is the one of the greatest days of the of the, the mid to early uh, part of the season. And you just can't go out no matter what the conditions are, because the wife is stressed with the kids or you know, other stuff's going to be done. And, and if you do go hunting, it will result in an argument and you just don't have the energy or want to deal with it. And, you know, we, we always talk about picking your battles mm -hmm. when it comes to our hunting addiction and, and relationships. And I decided to not even fight that battle yesterday and just, uh, hang out at home with the kids. So, uh, so yeah, that, uh, that sucks missing that front. And I got to tell you, yeah, as we're as you know, but for our listeners, we are recording this Monday of this week, right. and um, this cold front that you just talked about it hit yesterday and it instilled today. And I have heard from so many different people last night or this morning having killed bucks across the country. Right. Um, Lee Lakoski just shot a giant, um, and Don Higgins, who was our guest on episode one sixty four. Did you see this, Dan? Oh yeah, I saw that. He, the, he, one of the bucks that he called out. Yeah, 
he he uh, he killed the buck that he said he was ninety six percent sure he was going to kill when we talked to him on the podcast. Well, he got it done. Yeah. So yeah. that's crazy. The conditions were right for it. That's for sure. You get this cold front in October and high pressure and a little bit of rain or wind, and it's it's a good time to be in the woods, like you said. So, yeah, I tell you, I tell you what that not only are if you have a deer on your property, um, you know that are moving it that would have been a great time to get out there and shoot something however a lot of deer are starting to pop up nocturnally too um if you had a buck that's let's say you know um mia for the first part of the season you don't know where he's at it's talking to my buddy ben harshine from Hunterra maps he had one of his target bucks that he's been chasing for like oh three years uh come back to his farm and it's one of those things like it's automatic every year this week he came back I noticed the last time I checked my trail cameras, there was a, you know, an influx of three-year-old movement. So things are starting to slowly, you know, snowball to the best time of the year. Yeah, man. It's that October ramp-up period. Right. I uh, I love it. I got a friend who, same thing, he said a buck he, he was keeping tabs on last year, hoping he'd make it this year, and he just showed up a couple of days ago. And I'm hoping that's going to be the case uh Hoping that's going to be the case in some of my other spots. But, but you know what? I want to pause. Can we pause here? Let's pause. Because I want to talk about all, the, about all this stuff related to what's happening right now and what we're going to be doing, what our buddies are doing. But oh, absolutely. If, if we don't stop right now, we'll never get to the CWD <laughs> conversation. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so we have to talk about this because we've talked about it for two weeks in a row. We've like teased it. Um, so I just want to take like 10 minutes because you know it's just something I feel like we always need to make sure is top of mind that everyone's informed of the right stuff. Um, so chronic wasting disease. That's right. Are, are you cool with making the shift here when they did? Yep. We have to. Okay. We have to. All right. But I guess before we do that, this is probably a good place for us to pause for our Sitka gear story. So let's do that. And then we'll get back to this conversation about CWD for this week's Sitka story. We're joined by Clay Forrest, who tells us about a bird hunt. That was about a little more than killing some doves. So I got a phone call from one of my good buddies who has a, a cornfield behind his house that was just cut, and uh, he invited me to come up dove hunting. So I asked my uh, three-year-old son if he uh, would like to go with me, and uh, he was pretty ecstatic about it. So I got him up at 4.30 in the morning. He beat me to the alarm. Uh, we got gas station donuts and chocolate milk, and uh, we went to the uh, to the field to hunt some dove, and he... Uh, had a great time. We got him a little Mickey Mouse chair and we shot a few dove that morning and it was a nice, cool, cool morning. And, uh, we had a lot of fun and, uh, he really enjoyed it. I mean, he was picking up dove, uh, hanging them out, smiling with them, taking pictures with them. Just, uh, he really seemed to, uh, to really get into what I was doing and wasn't scared of the shotgun blast or anything and not scared of picking up a dead dove. And, uh, we had a lot of fun. He helped me clean them and put them in the, put them in the Ziploc bags, put them in the freezer and, uh, really went through the full experience. So it was something I always remember because it was the first time that, uh, I took my son hunting and, uh, it's definitely something that's going to stick with me for a long time. On Clay's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's core lightweight hoodie. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. So I went to this chronic wasting disease symposium 
held in Michigan. This was a couple weeks ago, and it was the first time an event like this has been held like on a national level, even international. There was uh, some people from Norway there as well. Um, the first time something like this has been done since I believe it was 2008, they told me. Um, so this is a really big deal. The, the, the top researchers from across the country were there. There were representatives from many, many of the different states that are being impacted by CWD right now. Many other folks from um, state agencies and conservation organizations and uh, even the captive servant industry. There were people kind of from all, all sides of this um, issue were there to talk about, number one, what's the latest on the science? What do we know? What do we not know? And then on day two, it was taking a look at, okay, how do we, how are we all trying to combat this? What's our game plan to deal with, to handle, um, to, to try to live with or contain or try to do something about CWD? So that was what I went to and got to listen to with a lot of really interesting conversations. So one of the big things coming out of that, though, was just the fact that all these studies have been done um, actually like the social side of it. So surveys and things done to hunters and the general public to try to see how well people actually understand CWD. And there's a pretty good, um, there's a pretty good level of awareness. Like if you, and I don't remember all the specific numbers, but when they surveyed hunters, most hunters had heard of CWD. But after that, there was a ton of People didn't really know the details of it. People didn't really know if it mattered or not. People were unsure of what to do about it, what it meant for them, uh, why it was such a big deal. There was a lot of questions there. So it seems that people have heard of this thing, but there's still a lot of misinformation or misunderstanding when it comes to what that actually means for us as hunters, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to like run through, like review a high-level set of like facts about CWD, um, and then touch on a few of the things I learned or that were, I was reminded of at the symposium. Um, and then, Dan, I guess as you have questions or thoughts on all this, you know, let me know or jump in and I'll see if I can recall anything from, from the symposium that I can share on that front. So, Sounds good. So CWD. CWD is an acronym for chronic wasting disease. It is a disease that's caused by misfolded protein in an animal, in an organism. And they call this a prion, P-R-I-O-N. When you have this misfolded protein, when you have this disease, it's essentially an attack on the brain, the neural um, system within a deer or other species that might have this disease. And it is always fatal. CWD is transmitted both directly and indirectly via the environment. So what that means is a direct transmission of CWD is something that can happen between deer to deer. So by saliva, blood, feces, urine, um, anything like that when another infected animal, when an infected animal comes into contact with a non-infected animal and those things transfer, there can be a transmission of the disease. Um, indirectly, CWD can be passed on because these prions or prions can be shed from an animal that has CWD. And by that, it means they can essentially go and get to any place that deer has been. So there can be infected prions. There can be these misfolded proteins left over on plants or water holes or mineral licks or just the dirt, um, you know, where deer are feeding or laying, anything like that. And animals can pick it up by have, coming into contact with those you know, external environmental things as well. So it's, it's a disease that can be transmitted in a lot of different ways. And you can't get rid of it. It's it's nearly, it's almost impossible 
to get rid of these prions once they're on the ground or on a surface or in a you know in a pile of mud or whatever it might be. So for those reasons, it's really concerning because if you get it where you're at, if you get it on your property or your county or your state, it's it's nearly impossible to get rid of it. Um, There's a question asked to a panel that basically said, you know, are there any examples of an area, you know, of CWD getting established in an area and then seeing that, you know, the level of infection go down? And the, the researchers there said no. There, it's, it's, it's never happened. If CW gets an established in a spot right now, we've not found an example of it being eliminated or dealt with. It's, it's been slowed. It's been, um, maybe, uh, what's the right word? Stabilized in a, in a way. So it's not, so the infection rate across an area or population isn't growing dramatically. There's been a few instances, instances like that, like in Illinois. Um, but if it's there, if it gets established, you're just not going to get rid of it. At least we haven't figured out how to get rid of it yet. Um, there's been like some a couple rare cases where like one infected animal has been found, and then if that animal is like quickly killed, one or two animals quickly killed. Like an, uh, there was an example discussed in New York where this happened, maybe eight or nine or ten years ago. They said they found an isolated case, they got rid of that animal, and it must have been a situation where that was the only animal that had been infected so far, and they have not detected it anywhere else yet around there. But long story short, if you don't have CWD, you don't want to get it. And if you do get it, you need to take it seriously. Um, the issue, as we've talked in past episodes, is that it's easy for people to underestimate CWD because you don't see the impacts of it as noticeably as something like EHD, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, which is what many hunters have experienced You know, back in 2012 or 13, and even this year, um, where these deer... In a, in a small localized area can get ESG and you can wipe out a significant number of the deer in an area, you know, 50, 60, 70% of all the deer in a little nook and cranny or a little nook can get killed, you know, in a summer, in a late summer. That's not how CWD works. CWD incubates in an animal for a relatively long time and it moves somewhat slowly through a herd as well. Um, but it is always fatal. So if a deer contracts CWD, if it doesn't die of some other cause, you know, by getting killed by a hunter in its first year or getting hit by a car or something, it will eventually be killed by CWD. It is an always fatal disease. Now, here's something that I did not know, though. Um, there are three different genotypes in, and this is, as I as I understood it, as I recall from, from the speakers, there are three different genotypes seen in, in typical whitetail populations. And a genotype effect essentially is just, uh, let's call it like a genetic um, type. So there's three white-tailed, within any set of white-tailed deer, like behind you know your house, Dan, or my house in Michigan, wherever it is, when you look at all the deer behind your house, there's going to be, they're kind of broken into three different categories. One category, one genotype, is about 80% of, of most deer are going to be this genotype, and they're the most impacted by CWD. They contract it the easiest and the quickest, and they're the fastest to die from it you've got a second genotype which is you know is a much smaller proportion of your deer herd maybe it was something like 10 percent of the deer out there are of this of this type and that type it takes a little bit longer for those deer to get cwd and they live a little bit longer with it and then finally there's this final genotype this final category of deer out here and that's a very minuscule number of deer have this but they are the most resistant to CWD. So there are some of these deer that can live a much longer time without getting it, even if it's in the area, and if they do get it, they can survive a much longer time. 
that was interesting to me. I never knew that, that there was these different genotypes that are impacted by CWD in different ways. So there's a lot of questions. There was a there was a, um, an expert there on the genetic side of things, and he was looking at what does this mean? Are we going to see some type of short, you know, like sped up version of evolution at some point where that genotype that is more resistant, um, you know, nature selects for that more often because of CWD? There's a whole bunch of questions there. There wasn't really any clear answers, but interesting. Um, the point being... CWD is going to impact a deer and kill it if it gets that disease. Another interesting thing I found is that the key thing to think about here that makes it different from EHG, like I said, EHG can knock out a herd or knock out significant numbers of deer right away. CWD takes a much longer time to do so, but it can have and does have population level impacts. It just takes a while for that to happen. But once it happens, different than EHD, it's going to keep happening over and over and over and over again because it's something you're not getting rid of. So, you know, when you get a bad outbreak of EHD in Iowa, you lose a bunch of deer this year. But then next year, things come back. The year after that, things come back. The year after that, things come back. If you get CWD in your area and you reach a high enough infection rate in your females, you're going to start noticing declining deer populations that are almost irreversible. As far as as far as we know so far, so we're seeing population impacts like that out in uh, Wyoming and Colorado, I believe, where they've been where they first discovered CWD and they've been tracking it for the longest. We're seeing deer herds declining now year after year because of that. And uh, a researcher professor from Wisconsin said that there are parts of Wisconsin now that have had CWD long enough, the infection rates are getting high enough that probably within five years, there will be parts of Wisconsin that are going to be seeing a noticeably declining deer population pointed, you know, specifically because of CWD. And that infection rate is about when 20 to 25% of your female deer are infected. That's when this kind of thing starts happening. So that's a serious, scary thing. Um, Obviously, that makes an impact to deer hunters if your deer populations start going down, of course. But then there's all these other concerning things when it comes to CWD. So, number one potential risk is that if it, it gets infected, if your deer herd gets infected enough for a long enough period of time, you can start having a declining deer herd. That's number one. Number two. Quick question. Quick yes. question before you get into number two. Yeah. Can a doe with CWD get you know get pregnant and does she pass cwd on to her newborn or is that something that the newborn has to pick up yeah great question it was something it was something that i did not know before i went to the symposium but we did hear all about this yes there's several different ways that a new that a that a doe can give cwd to its offspring number one it can transmit cwd in utero so while that fawn is still in the doe it can catch it can essentially be infected with cwd not always but it can and cwd can be transferred through like all sorts of different things within the the fetal ecosystem i'm not sure what you call it but um so yes it can it can get it that way or number two it can catch after being born simply because of all that direct contact with an infected deer right. and then also you see an increased um rate of infection within doe family groups simply because of that, because these deer are very close to each other all the time, touching each other, laying in the same areas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's a scary thing too. Um, interestingly though, males have a three to four times higher infection rate than females. Uh, that was a note I took from one of the conversation or one of the speakers. Um, but yeah, 
definitely lots of ways these these deer can can transfer the disease. Unfortunately, now CWD impacts deer populations, or it definitely will if given enough time without controlling it. The next question is: Can CWD impact humans? To this point, it has not been shown to jump from deer to humans. They have not been able to show anything like that happening. But there is, they can't say it's impossible. There's there's a lot of questions still around it. It definitely has been shown to jump to other species. So there's been different lab tests and things done where they've shown the CWD has jumped to other ungulates, that has um, been shown to jump to cats, and there's been a couple of recent studies with monkeys, um, one being spider monkeys, one being macaques, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, yeah. And they, they had a number of different ways they were testing how this transfer could happen. Um, and some of these tests, in some of these tests, they would um, input some infected material directly into the brain of one of these animals and see if they could get it that way. And some of them, they would feed an animal infected tissue and see if they would get it that way. And in others, they um, tried like cutting an animal and then uh, putting infected material in that cut. Um, so there's some questions around whether or not the monkey studies um, actually are legitimate, if they actually would simulate um, a real world situation. So, so there's a lot of question marks around that still, but the, the long story short is that there has been some ability to jump species. So that is, that is a possibility. It does happen. Um, has not been shown to happen with humans yet, but you still don't necessarily want to risk it. It's still like a concern that someday maybe will be shown to happen. Um, so for that reason, the center for disease control does recommend that if you are in a CWD positive area, potential positive area, you really need to get your deer tested. And they've now most recently, I think this just happened after these monkey studies came out, even though they're kind of maybe unconclusive, inconclusive. Um, they've now said that they do not recommend eating CWD positive animals. Um, now here's another thing to think about is that while CWD has not been shown to transfer to humans yet, um, and supposedly, it, it, you know, it's, it's not happening. Over in the UK, um, when there was this whole outbreak of mad cow disease, um, also scientifically known as, and I just like to say this word because it, it rolls off the tongue nicely, the technical term is bovine spongiform encephalopathy. <laughs> <laughs> I had to write that one down. Um, that was shown to jump to humans in a variant of Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, which is a human version of this type of um, disease. So if it was able to jump from cows to humans by eating beef, um, could something similar, which CWD is somewhat similar to uh, BSE, could something like that happen too? So the, the, the point of this all being said is that while it hasn't been proven to happen yet, we should be taking it very seriously because it's certainly not um, a 100% impossibility. Another thing that should be concerning is that CWD has been shown, these prions, these infected disease prions, have been shown to be able to be taken up into plants. So the prion falls onto or is, is input into wheat or some other kind of plant on the landscape. Um, I can't remember all the specifics here, so don't quote me on these specifics, but there were a number of studies done in laboratory environments that showed that certain plant species can take these prions up into the root system or the branches or the stems. Um, 
So that has a bunch of very scary implications if this ever started happening in a real-world environment too. And I think you can you can just um, look at that and, and uh, extrapolate that out and see like there's some scary ideas there if that ever happened. Um, if all of a sudden your corn could somehow transfer these prions to end users. Um, now, none of these things are happening in the real world yet, but tests have shown like there's this possibility. Um, so all this is to say that even though CWD may be in your area and you're not seeing a bunch of dead deer because of it, um, or CWD has been in Wisconsin for you know 15 years or whatever it is now, and you're still killing good deer and stuff, um, it is something that you just can't ignore because there's all these possibilities that are concerning and there are some things that are coming in the sooner short-term future as far as population level declines that are going to happen, that are happening. So I, I bring this all up because a couple things need to be, I think, reaffirmed for the whitetail hunting community. Number, number one, CWD is a real thing. This isn't a government conspiracy. This isn't something about politics. This isn't something that's being pushed on you by your state agency or by the car insurance companies or something silly like that. It is a real thing. There are real scientists who do not have political biases, who don't have any kind of agenda, people that are just doing real science that are showing this is a real issue. So we need to take that seriously as well. Number two. Since we need to take it seriously, there's a couple things that we as hunters need to be serious about following. So a couple guidelines that we need to be serious about following. If you're in a CWD positive area, most state, I think all, probably all state agencies now, but I, uh, state agencies in those areas typically are telling hunters that you really need to get your deer tested. And I believe this is a number just for Michigan, um, but in the CWD positive areas in Michigan, they showed, um, a survey showed that only 47% of people that are killing deer in that area are actually bringing them in to get checked in and tested. That's a horrible, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It's a horrible number of people actually following through on what they're supposed to be doing there. So get your act together, guys. Like We need to get these things tested. We need to help the state agencies monitor what's happening. And also for your own health, it's good to know whether these deer that are getting shot are CWD positive. So get tested. Number two, follow the local laws. If ba uh, if baiting or minerals or whatever and feeding has been banned where you're at, you got to take it seriously. It's not just the state agency trying to make your life a pain in the butt. They're doing this for a reason. Follow those rules. This is a serious issue. Number two, probably one of the most important things right now is that most of the um, most of the spread of chronic wasting disease across the country has been tied to the transfer of either live animals or animal parts. As a hunter, you probably have nothing to do with the transfer of live animals. That's a deal with the servant industry, the captive servant industry. That's a whole other conversation. Um, that stuff needs to be regulated, needs to be dealt with. But from a hunter standpoint, something we do probably um, have some culpability for is this transfer and transportation of dead animal parts. So this is killing a buck in Iowa and driving to Michigan with that dead deer in the back of your truck. That is illegal now. Um, and in many states, doing that, taking a deer body or portions of the body across state lines is something that you cannot do legally anymore because of the worry of transferring that CWD-positive material. Um, so now in the state of Michigan, it used to be just that 
you couldn't do that if you kill a deer or an animal in a CWD positive state. So if that situation I said, like if you kill one in, in uh, Missouri, CWD positive state, bring it back to Michigan, you, you can't do that. Now it's any state. At least the Michigan law is that if you kill another deer or if you kill a deer in another state, any other state, regardless of whether they have CWD or not or determined yet, you can only bring deboned meat, um, a cleaned hide, um, a cleaned skull cap and antlers. So basically you need to figure out how to cape out your deer, how to clean your deer, how to butcher your deer, where you're at, where you kill that deer, or you need to get a taxidermist or meat processor to help you with those things. You can't just throw that thing in the back of the truck, come back home. If your state doesn't have that kind of guideline, if you still can bring a deer across state state lines, excuse me, state lines, the recommendation is simply to be smart about how you dispose of those parts. Don't just, you know, butcher your deer and then throw the spine and skull and everything just back behind the house in a pile. And, you know, potentially that if that deer was CWD positive and you drop that stuff off behind the house, all of a sudden you could have just introduced CWD to a totally new place. So talk to your state agency or someone to figure out what the right way is to dispose of those things. Maybe it's burying it. Maybe it's, I don't, I don't know what the proper way is, um, but figure that out for your area Make sure you are not unknowingly, you know, proliferating something that can really seriously impact where you're at and the future of hunting in this country. Um, so that's my my high level CWD reminder. I would just encourage you all to to learn more about it, to stay up on it, to you know, to not let um, oh I don't know what you call it, kind of like um, CWD fatigue impact you, right? Because like when CWD first started showing up in whitetails in the early 2000s in Wisconsin, there's lots of articles, lots of people talking about it. People were taking it seriously, but then over the years, people get kind of kind of tired of it. Uh, we've heard people ranting about CWD for so long now; it's not that big of a deal. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But we have to listen. We have to take it seriously. Um, we can't just pretend it's not happening and try to live live our lives, just you know, continue on without actually trying to do the right things to deal with this as best as possible. Um, so that's my my rant for the day. And I just want to add something real quick. Be aware of where you're getting your information because social media is probably not the best place to get educated on CWD. And the reason for that is, is I'm going to, chalk this up to a learning experience, reading a headline and then assuming that, hey, CWD is making the jump to humans, right? Which it is not currently making the jump to humans. But this article, you know, it's one of these articles that it's worded so that you would click on it, basically clickbait. And then you get in there and you start reading. But I didn't, you know, I fell victim to this. And it's it's honestly embarrassing to say, but I, I, went, holy shit, CWD made the jump to humans. And, and then I, you know, I went back and I read the article, but if someone didn't read the article or didn't go that one step further, then you, then we've created a rumor mill. And once that, uh, hits, then we know that non-hunters may hear that. And then it's like, Whoa, wait a second. All deer are bad or the wrong kind of people hear it. Like, let's say, uh, a rumor gets spread about how CWD can make the jump to livestock or to ag. And when that happens, or if that happens, deer hunting goes bye-bye because obviously there's more value in ag and uh, livestock than there is the whitetail. Yeah. 
yeah, it, 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 we got to pay attention to it. We need to, like you said, make sure we're educated on it. Be aware of the right sources. There, there's so much baloney these days on Facebook that people believe and that people share around. I'm like, did you look at the source of this material? Like, I see yeah. these Facebook posts with like Photoshop pictures of something going on, and, like people getting all outraged in the comment section. I'm like, this is bogus. There's yeah. so much baloney out there. So, so take a second to think about that. Is this a reputable source? Is this science based or is this? You know, someone who just has an agenda who's ranting about their take on it, but really can't point right. to the real stuff going on here. Um, right. I think it, it's it's very clear when you get the the best people in the world on this issue talking about it. It's very clear this is an issue. This is a real thing. This is a new disease. This isn't something that's been around forever that all of a sudden we just re- realize is around. So p- some people have, have made that claim. They said, "Well, this is this has been around forever. We just." Just recently noticed it. It's not a big deal because it's been around for so long. And everyone's just you know making it up to be more than it is. Um, that question was asked in one of these panel discussions. They said, "No, we don't believe that's the case because when we find CWD, when we first identify CWD in an, in an area, the way that the disease moves through the herd and the way the animals um, react to it." is spot on exactly with what you see with all new diseases popping up in an area. Like this is what happens when a disease, when a new disease comes into an area, this is not what it looks like if a disease was in an area forever. So, so this is just something we gotta, we have to look at as, um, as, as realists and look at the, the practical implications of it and make sure we're, we're doing what we can as hunters to, to move in the right direction. Right. Absolutely. And then, for me, it's also I don't want I don't want to like stand on a soapbox box and preach, but I I don't think that the hunting industry itself and the people who are in quote unquote leadership roles within the hunting industry um, are are literally doing enough. Um, and there are people in the hunting industry who are part of that group who think that CWD is a joke. Or it's not to be taken seriously. And that is a – that's a bad thing because those, they're telling their followers, you know, I don't worry about CWD. It's going to – you know, it's been around forever or it's not, a, it's not serious. Then, then we have these people spreading negative – a bad, bad information. And that pisses me off. Yeah, man. There's a lot of that. It's disappointing. But I think, you know – just take a second. When you hear something about CWD or anything really in, in the world today, take a look at that person who you're hearing this from or that resource. Again, look at your source. Is this a, a real source that's looking at you know real data, real research, real science? Or is this uh, Joe Blow crazy guy who's just saying stuff? Or someone who has a, an agenda or who has, you know, there's some behind the scenes motivation for him not to want you to think CWD matters. So Absolutely. I, I certainly do not claim in any way to be an expert on this topic. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. But all I'm trying to do here is is relay the information I got from those people who really, really do know that they spend their entire lives looking into this stuff, and um, it's no joke. So, real quick, where did they say how this disease came to be? I mean, is it is it part of an evolutionary process, or is it actually you know just like pop? It came up, and because didn't it start in mule deer? They first they first uh, found it yeah in mule deer populations in in Wyoming or Colorado, one of those two states. Yep. 
Yeah. And and no, there there did not seem to be an answer as to how how it first comes about. Um, it, it's likely from a, if I remember right, I think there were some hypotheses around it likely being like a freak mutation of a of a protein, and that you know once that happens, then it can be transmitted and it's just gone from there. And then you see, you know, it's not like something that has just started in one place and slowly spread into a massive amoeba crossing the country. It, it goes from one spot, and then you can see how when we're transferring an animal excuse me, transferring animal parts, you just see these random spots popping up all over different parts of the country where you've got, you know, a shipment of deer or someone brought a dead deer carcass across or just different things like that. Many times it's centered around these captive servid locations. I don't think that's the case in 100% of them, but I know that many times that's been what's happened. Um, or at least that's what I remember hearing. Um, Was there anybody from the servid industry that spoke there was someone there from the uh, industry, but they were there the second day, and I was not there for that discussion. So I was there yeah. for the first day, the whole research day. I didn't hear what he had to say. Um, I did hear from them a couple of years ago at the National North No, the North American Deer Summit a couple of years ago, and the same guy was there at that time. Um, and and his angle was, yeah, we think it's a serious thing too. Um, that's why you know. We're, Animals are getting tested in our facilities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, wild animals are just as much as a problem as well. Um, the interesting thing about CWD tests right now is there is no such thing as a negative result. So if we're testing an animal, whether it be a, a dead animal or a live animal, um, so what is that? I think it's called postmortem or pre-mortem or I don't know what they called it, but, um, you can get a positive result, so you can say, yes, this deer is positive for CWD, or you get a, um, I can't remember how they particularly phrase it, it was like unconclusive or not, it was either positive or not positive, but that yeah. doesn't mean that it's negative, it just means we couldn't detect it being positive, but it's not a guaranteed negative. Um, so that's a whole other concerning thing too. Right. So you can get you can get false positives or you can not detect it, but that doesn't mean that deer doesn't have it, it's just simply we haven't been able to get a 100% positive or negative test it's it's positive or not detected which eh, okay hopefully it's not positive but we're not sure right so that's the that's the scary thing because let's say they they find out a new way of doing it and then they realize uh now there's way more deer that have it right than what we think right yeah so there's lots of question marks still lots of um you know, just there's just we need to pay attention to it. the point of me saying all these things is that we just need to take it seriously. We need to pay attention. We need to stay educated and we need to support our state agencies when they try to make the right decisions to help us manage, manage the issue in an area. So I don't have all the answers. I don't know if anyone does, but uh, but if nothing else, we just need to be supportive. We need to pay attention and we need to not, um, I don't know, not bury our heads in the sand. Let's talk about fun stuff, though, Dan. I'm down for that. Because we, we had a good 10, 15 minutes here of, of a downer on CWD. But um, there's good there's good news in the world, too. There's good news in the world, too. It's deer hunting season. First mm-hmm. cold front, first good cold front, at least for a lot of areas of the country, just passed through here yesterday and today. So that's exciting. Um, you were saying that Ben got his big buck on camera. Is that pork? Is that that one? Yep. Yep, it's Ben awesome. got his uh he sent me uh oh 
I don't know if I'm supposed to share that information or not, but I just did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a buck that he's been hunting for a while, uh, showed back up on the farm, um, that he actually hit last year and it ended up surviving. And then, um, uh, just like many of us, you know, you, you think about that deer uh, the entire rest of the year. And finally he showed back up on trail camera, uh, basically on an annual pattern. Yeah. Uh, so, so you haven't hunted since the last time you had that like really good sit last weekend, right? Where you saw that nice buck. Right. Right. Yeah. What's, what's your game plan moving forward though? Do you have, uh, do you have plans for the coming week? Yeah. Or week and a half? Well, Here's the thing, like I'm I, I'm debating with myself on how I want to handle this. Like, you ever have have you ever done something because you've been pressured into it, and, uh, and it ended up being maybe like a negative, like, hey man, you should drink one more beer, and then you puke all over. Yeah, I've been there. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah, something along those lines. Um, so you know this whole talk about this October lull, right? Like. We kind of have different views on it. I do not – I don't believe in the October lull. I, well, I think uh, it's it's dumb. and I mean in a way, there's just a little bit of a different different thought on that. It, it comes down to an issue of semantics I think. It's like yeah. how we're talking about it. But right. let, let's, let's argue this one out a little bit though. Yeah. Because I do take issue – not take issue, but I, I disagree with you maybe a little bit even though I think we really do agree. But – when you say the October lull is is BS, right? It is in a way BS, but it is also not in a way BS because let me give you my perspective at least, and then you okay. tell me if you agree or disagree. The October lull is not a biological reality, right? Research has shown that buck activity steadily increases throughout the month of October. So there is not a actual October lull that is happening because of biology. Right. But many hunters experience an October lull. And I'm saying that this is this is a this is a reality that many people experience, but it doesn't have to be that way. Doesn't ha- you don't have to experience an October lull, but many hunters do. So my point is, okay, yeah, if you're experiencing an October lull, here's why that might be happening. Here's what you can do to change that. Um and here's why I think you may be experiencing a lull at this time of year. Number one, because maybe the hunting pressure in your area has increased, which many cases is many times is the case as hunting seasons opened in early October, or late September. Now these deer are changing their behavior because of that, uh, that hunting pressure or food sources have changed. So beans have matured and are getting harvested. Corns turn and brown acorns are dropping all their soft mass trees are dropping. So there's all this influx of different types of food sources that might change deer behavior. Leaves are falling. The available cover is changing. So you've got these three changes in the whitetail woods that are causing deer to change where they spend their time, how they spend their time, and maybe how much time they spend during daylight. Those things are all changing in and around early to mid October. So for the guy that doesn't know those things, the guy or girl who doesn't know those things, or the guy or girl who doesn't know to properly adjust to those things, he's probably experiencing October lull. He's hunting a spot, he hasn't adjusted properly, he's not seeing deer, and he's just making things worse for himself later in the year. For that guy or girl, the October lull is real, and we need to either say, hey, here's here's why and how to change it, or if you don't know those things, if you're not able to adjust then yeah, you might want to follow the usual October lull advice, which is to stay out, be careful, 
because if you can't properly adjust for those shifts, you are making things worse. Um, that is my take on the quote unquote October lull. I think right. you agree with all that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with it. Except, you know, and back to the semantics part of it. I agree with it, but I just like the lull. Just stop calling it that. I mean, I don't want to, I don't I, like, I, every time I even say that word, I get a little cringe in my stomach because it's like, it's calling something, something that it's not, you know what I mean? I do and know it, what you mean. It pisses me off because, because then there's other guys who will sit out there and defend it. Like, Hey man, I only have 20 acres. And so I definitely see uh, a lull. No, you don't. That's not a lull, right? Just because you have only 20 acres to hunt. That doesn't mean there's deer. It probably means that you went in there too hot and heavy and bumped them out. Or like we like we've already discussed, there's a change in in something. Deer are out there. Deer are moving. Go find them and then set up on them. Boom, done. Next topic. <laughs> but what if um, is that the right is that the right recommendation? Because if if um, if such and such person. Who is who has historically experienced a lull? So whether you like it or not, people call it that. So I simply right. I simply say, okay, let's if if people are going to continue to say October lull, which it's just it's entrenched in deer culture, it's a word that's out there. My at least my thought has been, yes, I will use that word because it's a trigger word, it gets people's attention. But then yeah. once they click into it or they hear you say it or whatever, then you can educate them on the reality of it. Um, but that said, let's say there's someone who has experienced a lull, and you say to them. No, there's not a lull. Go in there and find them. Right. Is that right. good advice for someone who hasn't already prepared for this, who doesn't know how the deer react, who doesn't know how they're shifting to just go in and walk around blindly to find this at this time of year? I, I'm going to say in a way you have to. And the reason because of that is how do you know what you're actually hunting, right? If it, unless you're just going out there to hunt. And like for me, I'm after a certain – uh, category of, of animal, right? Um, my goal is to harvest a four-year-old. So in order for me to do that, I have to know where some of these deer are at. And one way to do that is to go in and set up observation stands and locate where these animals are or run trail cameras and locate, you know, locate them that way. I guess, I guess the, I guess there's a negative con connotation with the lull. And here, you know, I might get crucified for saying this is, People who have not been successful think there is a lull. Does that make sense? Like they're using this as an excuse for why they excuse. haven't been successful? Yeah. Well, not necessarily. I mean, for this time of year. So, hey, there's a lull. It's the lull. I got to stay out. Well, if you don't know what your deer are doing anyway, you know, what's, what's the point? You know, we all know that saying you can't kill them if you're sitting on the couch. So if you've never tried to hunt this time of year, and you use that as the the excuse, then that that's that's bad practice in general for anything. You have to experience failure in order to be better. And if you've failed so much this time of year by going in and locating them or or hunting, you know, doing, you know, going in, then that's fine. You've learned just like I've learned that next weekend it's supposed to be seventy five degrees. I know the deer are going to be moving nocturnal and. Unless there's a reason for me to go out there and hunt, I'm not going to jump into my best spots. It's not because there's a lull. It's because the information provided to me is telling me what I should or should not do. So you don't think – well, 
would you disagree though that the average amount of buck activity is better on November second than it is on October fifteenth? Typically, Abs- yep, absolutely. And then would you see, and then you also just said that you would rather you know that buck activity on average might be better on a day of a cold front versus a day of seventy five degrees. Would you agree with that? Like, Say that one more time. Yeah, sorry. Would you would you rather hunt a big cold front day a day or two after a cold front versus hunted random day when it's seventy five or seventy degrees or something like that where it's been hot for a while? Right. Right. So so simple what I'm trying to establish is that there are certain days that are better to hunt and you would you would usually try to plan your best hunts, you're going to your better spots on the days that are better, right? Right. And that could be either a weather factor or it could be a date of the calendar factor, right? So would it not be necessarily bad advice for people that if you don't have a cold front in mid-October, if you don't have something that's really going to get deer moving exceptionally well, and you don't have the intel, if you don't know how the shift is happening, and you don't think that you can, in some type of low-impact way, discover that, Maybe in those situations, it is better to hold off until the date on the calendar tells you that your odds are higher um, than they might be right now. Even though, yes, if you go, you can find there are deer moving right now. But if you don't know where they're moving, if you don't have good conditions that might tip the odds in your favor a little bit, you might be making things worse for yourself um, otherwise. Right. Yep. I agree. I I agree with everything you've said. However, when... When it comes time to locate a deer, right, you're not going to locate a deer sitting on a field edge in, you know, when this, when this shift is happening, right? Um, you're not going to, so I guess what I'm saying is don't be afraid to fail. I, I mean, unless you know your property, unless you've been hunting a prop, certain properties for like, um, I don't know you know, 10, 15 years and you, and you know, or even a year, right. And you, you've really found out what these deer are doing. It's definitely okay. But what I'm saying is you're gaining nothing sitting on the couch this time of year. If you don't know what your deer herd is doing, if you don't know what the, the deer you're chasing are doing, because then you're going in, what I feel is one step behind in the rut. And then you're playing, then you're playing catch up. On the other side of things, you might be going in there and educating deer right now. And then yep. you're not enjoying the full impacts, the positive impacts of the rut because you've bumbled around telling every deer that, hey, I'm in the area. Right. There's there's that chance. Uh, but I, I don't think the guy who – I guess I'm a little bit more aggressive than most when it comes to – I guess it's stylistic than at this point, mm-hmm. right, where I feel and, – and, and again, I – you know, this all comes back down to how much property you have, man. I have, sure. I, I have a couple thousand acres. But I don't own it. I don't lease it. So in a way, I'm kind of in the same boat as some of the other guys that are out there. I just – I don't like excuses and I don't like someone saying, hey, 20, 20 acres – all I have is 20 acres. Well, you can have 20 acres, um, but who – I mean is that because every other person has told you no that you know to hunt, you know whether to drive? I mean it, it kind of – from this point, it goes on to a bigger – you know, yeah. th- those topics yeah. that we have for almost every episode, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it can, it can spend, spend off to that. I'm just, I'm just saying, don't be past, don't be afraid to be aggressive this time of year too, because they're, they're still out there. Yes. The value may, 
may be a little, the value of that hunt may be a little different, but if I get the opportunity to go out and hunt next weekend and, and I'm debating going out and doing this just because I want to prove a point or I want to have an encounter so bad because I've, I've had encounters in the past with mature deer this time of year, whether it's 75 degrees or a cold front's come through, I want to, you know, it's okay to be, it's okay to be aggressive this time of year and the deer are out there and they are moving and you can't, you can't, you can't locate a deer if you're not in the timber. Yeah, uh, that's true. I think stylistically, I think though a, a really important point you made there was what amount of ground you're working with. If I had right. thousands of acres of land, heck yeah, I'd be out there hunting all the time because who cares? I mean, like you've got other places to go. Um, but like the spot I'm hunting Holyfield, there's 90 acres, there's 40 acres of cover that I'm hunting basically. And if I'm hunting that all the time, trying to figure out where he is, I'm never going to see him. So yeah. in this kind of situation, like you have to be very, very careful about when you do go in those spots. So what I choose to do during this time of year, um, because I don't have the, I don't, I, as much as I know this area, I'm not able to get on that buck in daylight based on all the scouting I've done in the past, the historical observations, trail cameras, et cetera, et cetera. So in that kind of situation, in my opinion, it's better to wait until the timing is better. But to your point, it is still worth hunting. It is still worth because anything can happen. There are still right. good days. Deer are still out there. Deer are moving. So I'm just spending my hunting time on areas that are lower risk where I'm not as worried about messing up my number one goal. Um, so I'm hunting a bunch of public land. I'm going to other states to do some different things. Um, so if you've got other spots to hunt, I highly recommend it. I'm all about dig in there, find new spots, be aggressive. But if you, for whatever reason, if you do only have 20 acres to hunt and that's at this point, that's all you've gotten, let's say for that guy at this point with the cards he has in his hand right now, maybe it is better to be safe and wait a little bit longer. Like you said earlier, that's not a great situation. Ideally you would already have found other places you can hunt or, you know, public land or you get permission somewhere else. So you're not in that position. But if you are, and you don't know how the shift happened, then yes, my recommendation would be, okay, if you haven't accounted for the shift, if you don't have other places to go have a good time, you probably will screw things up more than help if you go blundering around right now. Wait until a cold front or an observation or a little bit later in the month till things pick up even more. That's that's my personal take. I think we've basically right. just gone around in circles on it. But. We could. We could. I mean, I'm... If I go out this weekend and the only reason I don't go out this weekend is simply to and I want to go out really bad, but I also don't want to piss my wife off. Right. And that te technically that is the only reason why I wouldn't go out. If if I go hunting, I'm going to set up in an observation stand uh, where I can see relatively good movement or find myself in a really tight little area with great access to you know, where I know the wind's going to be good. So if something does come by, um, it will, you know, within shooting light, I'll be there for it. Um, but I'm not, I'm not careless. I'm not going to go hammering through the woods, you know, or, or going into a place where the wind's wrong or that has shitty access, you know, I'm going to play it as smart as humanly possible, but I'm, I'm not going to not hunt. All right, so before we get too far into this new topic of talking about our upcoming plans, 
let's take a quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. And Spencer Newharth will take it from here. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Adam Hayden, a land specialist out of Ohio. And Adam is going to be telling us about how to develop a checklist as a property buyer. One thing that I would suggest uh, whenever I, you know, if I was going in to look at a property, I would sit down and I would just ask myself several questions. A, you know, how big of a property do I want? B, obviously, what is my budget? And then, you know, I would go in to see like the just detailed specifics. Um, you know, am, am, am I wanting big open woods? Am I wanting crop fields around, just depending on where you're at in the country? Um, you know, am I wanting water on the property? And if water's not there, do I have capabilities of putting a pond in myself? Um, you know, there's just so many things that you can think about um, and write actually on paper and make a list that will help you being, you know, help a buyer. Uh, whenever they're looking at properties physically or filtering through them online, they can actually go through and eliminate properties or check off properties. Um, but then also just kind of keep a list. I mean, if you, if you narrow your what you're wanting to look at down to three, four, or five properties and you have a checklist, even in an Excel file or something else, so easy to go in there and then check off and look at the ones that have hit uh, more criteria than the others, and it would help you choose the property that's best for you. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Adam currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Hayden. That's H-A-Y-D-E-N. Yeah. And I think that's all. I think that's all important. That's all smart. Like that's, that's, that's something that I think everyone should be keeping in mind. So if you do get to go in this weekend, if, if you get the blessing from, uh, from the powers that be, um, (laughs) (laughs) what's your game plan? Where are you hunting? What's, uh, you said observation stand. Do you have a specific area already picked out based on, do you have some kind of rationale for what you're going to do? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have what I feel is a really good area. So, they're betting on these ridges. They're coming off these ridges. They're following kind of the terrain as a crick flows through and all the, all the uh, ridges come down and end in kind of this general area, really good crick access, right? I can, I can get in the crick and walk to uh, the stand location. Uh, and this all is dependent on what the wind direction is, right? So if the, it's like a straight North wind, I probably can't hunt it cause my wind would blow too hard into where that bedding area is. Um, I doubt we get, uh, the, the weather says there's not going to be any precipitation for a while. So I d- doubt there's going to be any type of, um, wind with an East type of wind in it. So I really like this time of year off the bedding areas, just a ways before the staging areas where the deer aren't congregated around you. If they do show up, they they're walking by you. So they're, then they go into this staging area, they're hanging out in there, they're already past you, and then they go into the, the, uh, their food source. So wherever that food source is, it doesn't necessarily have to be an ag field, but um, that bedding, travel corridor, staging area, um, uh, food source that we kind of talk about. However, on this scenario, that food source is a is a either a clover field or a uh, cornfield and man that that staging area when i went and hunted it last time was packed 
right? I mean, the deer were coming off these ridges left and right. You know, I saw a really good buck there last time and, you know, I may need to adjust my stand location a bit, but I just feel I have really good cover to get into this, this little area that's before the staging area and in between, it's like that travel corridor, little area between bedding and staging. And man, I think that that's, it could be good any time of year, no matter what the weather is or what the temperature is. It's just, you're, you're really close to the bedding area. You can get in there and not disturb anything. I already have a stand hung for it. So I don't know. It's just, if they're going to move, they're going to move type deal. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. I'm Sounds uh, really good. Yeah. And then and it also depends on if the crops are up. Because if the crops are up in another field, I think I might sit an observation stand and watch what is happening on the high part of this field. And I'm going to look down this buffer strip and see if there's anything crossing. And if there is, then the next night I'll be in there with a uh, running gun stand wherever that deer crossed. If the winds are consistent. Ah, I love those kinds of areas. I love an observation stand type setup like that where you can just see a long ways and see what's going on and observe right. and adjust. That is yep. a fun way to hunt. Well, I'll tell you what, and, but here's the problem. Those are good, but what I, and I'll, I'm, I'll tell this to people as a learning experience. Don't sit, if you see something and it, and you see something good, move in on that the very next opportunity you get because I used to be in the habit of thinking, okay, two times is a pattern, right? I needed something to happen two times to be a pattern. So I'll sit it, I would sit in observation area two times in a row. Well, typically, th- unless it's a south wind, winds don't hold true for 48 hours, right? There's going to be some kind of play in them. So that deer could potentially use a different, you know, trail or, you know, pattern to get from his bedding to his food source if that's the hot food source at this time so don't wait and hunt that second uh that second night and do a observation stand if you see something you want to kill you better be in there the next night but then don't you hate it when you go move to that other spot and then that day you see him walk by where your stand was (laughs) hey the buck i killed in in 2012 um I bet me and my buddy Ryan, he was the camera guy for me at that time. We tore down and set up within a five acre area, probably 12 different times before I killed, killed that, uh, I didn't, not that buck, but, uh, before I killed a mature buck. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. So you gotta, I mean, you gotta be willing to work for it, but if you're looking for like a, a one, two knockout punch that, that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's always the rub, and I, that's something I've struggled with too. Is, is knowing when to move and when to wait, and you know, you just never know though. When you when you see something happen, did that ha- is that an anomaly, or is that happening for a reason, or everything happens for a reason? But is that an, an anomaly that's not going to repeat itself, or is there something that's going to repeat itself? I don't know the answer for me, but I I definitely do know that it's it's better to to sometimes make that move than sit and wait and regret it. That's for sure. So I will tell you this. Okay. On the days that I sit in observation stand and witness a, a mature buck or a, what I'm going to call a shooter in my book, the days that I witness or from an observation stand, witness a mature buck moving and the days that I move in that next day, 
I bet you that the success rate of at least seeing him at a closer distance, not necessarily harvesting him and killing him and getting him or getting him to come down the right trail, the, the success rate for me to just see that buck the next possible day is higher positive than it is negative. Even if it's only like 55 to 45%. Yeah. Hmm. We're getting to that time of year where that kind of stuff's going to be happening a lot for a lot of us. Um, right. The ramp up is happening, so you are possibly going to hunt this weekend, and that's possibly, like yeah. the like the twenty second or twenty first and twenty second is this coming weekend. Yep. And then the next weekend is Man, what? It's a wedding in Minnesota. <laughs> no, <laughs> dude, I haven't hunted that last weekend in October for like four years, and now that because it's either been trick or treating, got to go with the kids. Or it's been um, weddings or something has happened and I don't get to get into the – and that's like one of my favorite times of year. It's when I start seeing the big boys on their feet, right? Uh-huh. That's when that's when you can do that one and you see antlers you know, turn on a dime and start walking your way or you rattle at something and they turn around and come to inspect, right? They're not full blown rut crazy, but they're curious. And that's like one of my favorite times of year. Oh yeah. It's when the magic starts happening a little bit. Right. It's uh, and, and not only does the magic start picking up at that time of year, but also I just looked at the extended forecast and finally we got some cold weather coming in right with the beginning of that phase. At least for me in southern Michigan, it's been like in the set. Other than today, today's actually pretty nice. It's like in the 50s. Um, but then it gets hot again for the next week and a half into the 70s, all the way till next Tuesday and Wednesday. And next right. Tuesday and Wednesday, it's so like the 24th and 25th and 26th, it's dropping down like the 50s and even maybe like the 40s. Finally, like a legitimate cold front coinciding with that last week of October. So. I'm really excited about that because, as you know, as we've talked about, I've been holding off on hunting Holyfield until that time frame and hoping that a cold front would coincide with that time frame. And right. it looks like if the if the weather forecast stays true, which you never know if it will, but if it does, I'm going to be super, super duper pumped for like the 25th, 26th, 27th of next week. Um, yeah, so I'm jacked. I need to ask you some questions about this approach to Holyfield, if you don't mind. Please do. Okay, so right now, when was the last time you checked your trail cameras uh, with Holyfield and, I ch- and had a picture of Holyfield on? Yep, I checked my trail cameras um, this past uh, Friday, I think. So Friday okay. the twenty, Friday the thirteenth, I checked the trail cameras. Okay, any any close to daylight activity? No, no. Okay, uh, so he's all he's coming in in the middle of the night, right? Yep. The only pictures okay. I've, I had, um, two daylight pictures of him in September. Everything else has been middle of the night. Okay. So last couple of years, when has he started coming? Is he, is he a, is he out of there for morning hunts? I mean, are morning hunts a, a no brainer? Cause it sounds to me like where he's coming is a destination, right? So if you were to drive a four wheeler or something in there in the morning, you'd probably bump him out. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So this is an evening hunt scenario, right? Yeah. Until the rut, until the rut. Yeah. And then I just, I, I couldn't hunt this front area in the mornings in the rut, but I can hunt other portions of the property in the rut and hope that I could catch him cruising around off of his, you know, just look, checking out different bedding areas. But the two, 
and again, this farm, just like where he lives and then how I can hunt it, it just, it very, very much so. And we've talked about it at length in past years. I'm really, really limited. I can hunt, like all I can hunt is a field edge. Like there's, there's no, I can't get into any of the stuff that he transitions through. I can't get to where he beds. I can't get into any of that stuff. Um, so all I've been able to do is try to make the areas that he might come out to feed a little bit more appealing. Um, and in past years, I've hunted him in mid-October, early in mid-October, hoping I would catch him out there in daylight. And I never did. And so my hypothesis has been that I'm just wasting, maybe I've just been wasting my time and making it less likely that he'll ever come out there in late October when he does move in daylight more often. So my, my plan this year has been, unless I get something that tells me I need to change his plan, like unless I see him in daylight when I'm scouting or get daylight pictures of him, if nothing like that happens... I'm just going to be really, really patient until his historical pattern tells me this is when he typically moves more in daylight. And if you hadn't been in there at all up until that point, he should move in daylight closer to you even more than you've seen him in the past couple of years. Right. That's so been then, the theory. Okay. So then have you, have you kind of mapped out or had like an internal conversation with yourself about his, his travel patterns throughout the day when he does hit? Like where he's coming in at, where he's going and hypothetically what he's doing when he's, excuse me, not on your property. A little, I mean, there's only so much I can figure because of, you know, there's only so much that's happening on property. I can run cameras that I can observe, but I have to a degree, I know some stuff. Um, and I have some theories of, of what he's doing. Um, but obviously lots of unknowns cause I'm just, I'm working with a very, very tiny sliver of, of where he's hanging out. Okay. But I, right. did, I did this. I, um, you know, I've been running his the trail cameras with Deer Lab and looking at patterns through that. And then I've also been keeping a journal entry of every single sighting I have of him. Well, today I went and I combined those two things together into an Excel spreadsheet. And so what I did is I took every single daylight data point. So either an in-the-field observation of him during daylight or daylight trail camera photo. And I in- input that into a spreadsheet. And then I mapped out the location, whether it was AM or PM, what the temperature was, if this was a cold front sighting, so if this, if this came after a temperature drop of more than 10 degrees, um, what the wind direction was, what the wind speed was, what the pressure was, was this on a red moon day, or was this on a moon on the edges day? So the, the two theories that some people talk about is that there's this moon overhead or underfoot, and that's this red moon time frame that guys like Adam Hayes talk about. And then there's some guys who like to see the moon rising or setting um, during the last hour of daylight or the first hour of daylight. So I wanted to see if any of those things correlated with the daylight observations I have of him. So I have 54 daylight data points to work with from 2015. So there's 50. Yeah, there's since 2015 through now, there's been 54 times either I've seen him or I've gotten a picture of him. And I'm not counting like, you know, if you get a you know, like if you get a burst of three photos during daylight and then he stays there for another two minutes, I'm only counting one picture from like every day. So 54 different days that I've either had him seen or photographed. Um, and then I like tried to match that against any one of these things. So is there any of these factors that correlate with him being daylight active? Cause again, I'm just trying to see, is there any way I can better fine tune when to start going after him or which days to, to go to the best spots just cause I think, you know, last year, right, I saw him a ton, but only a couple times was he ever actually on the property I could shoot him on. Um, very often he was just back on the cover and stuff. So I'm just trying to be really careful about those times I strike so that there's a little bit better chance that he is on my side. 
Um, so I found that there wasn't a really strong correlation to the moon at all. Um, 13 out of the 54 daylight data points happened with a red moon. Um, 12 of the 54 happened with the moon on the edges. Um, but if you combine those, 46%, so nearly 50% of all of my daylight pictures or sightings happened when there was something moon-related that supposedly is supposed to help you. Um, what I didn't figure out was how many days of the month would have one of those two factors. So if it's, uh, so if that, do you know what I'm trying to say? So you're basically, what you're looking for is to narrow down all your um, data points to try to find the highest possibility of an encounter with with him based off daylight intel. Yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe there's like something glaringly obvious that I haven't noticed before. Like I, I'd love to see something like if I had never looked at this in this level of detail, it'd be awesome to see, oh man, if 85% of all of my daylight encounters with him happened when you had this red moon thing going on, like, whoa, that's an eye opener. But that I did not find that. But right. I was hoping to find something like that with something with wind or cold weather or the moon or pressure or something. That was the hope or like the, the maybe if I find that, that will just help me better inform when to strike in the best spots. Um, so it, does he favor a wind? So that is the biggest thing that he does have a correlation with. 72% of my sightings or daylight photos of him happen with a westerly wind of some type. Now that is, we do get more westerly winds than anything. Um, so maybe that's just because that's what we've got. But, um, but it suffice to say, very few pictures or sightings when there is something easterly or straight north or straight south. So that again tells me when I've got those southwest or northwest winds, you know, I shouldn't be trying to wait for something better. I should, I should know that those are the days when he's 75% of the time, almost that's when he's moving. Um, I was surprised to see that only 37% of these sightings happened with the cold front. So that means 70 or 63% of the time I was seeing or observing him, um, on a, on just a regular day, a non cold front day. So that was a little surprising. Although a lot of that, I need to I need to do some further digging in. A ton of those have been in December. Um, he just becomes disproportionately daylight active in my spots in December. Um, I don't know exactly why that is. Maybe it's just because I've got the best late season food. But man, if I don't, if he if if he somehow makes it through October and November into December, he's just ridiculously killable in my yeah. in my area. Like I mean. Day after day after day after day, daylight active. Um, but I, I would really like to kill him before then. So, so, so I'm I was sorry. just gonna, I was just gonna say. So there weren't any really big aha moments out of the analysis. It, it's interesting to see. I'm gonna continue to kind of parse through it and see if there's any, you know, as I filter by different variables a little bit differently. Um, and you know, it might be interesting to see. Okay, at this one front food plot area in October, November, how do these things then look? So that might, maybe there'll be different factors there. Maybe in October and November at this one location, maybe he only moves up there when there's a certain wind direction or a certain moon or something like that. Um, I don't know, but I'm just trying to, it's interesting if nothing else. Um, and maybe it would, maybe it could help me. Okay. The property that he lives on that you do not have access to. Are these uh, people other active bow hunters? 
Um, not very active. No, they don't okay. hunt very often. I, I don't. Yeah. You don't, okay. I hope they don't become active bars at least. Right. Right. So selfishly, nothing is there. It, I mean, do you ever play the game like if I could hunt? Oh, where yes. If if you could hunt this uh, little area, you know, the next property over where you would put a tree stand in. I've thought about it all the time. Okay. I sit there all the time and be, oh, if only I could be over there. So have you, and when you talk with this landowner, what do they say to you? What, what, what are they, I mean, are you in constant communication with them? Do you talk with them? Do they know the, the story of this buck? Um, do they know anything? Uh, no, I, I kind of keep it. I, you know, we keep relatively private. We talk every once in a while. Um, really, really nice people. Um, but they, they're not in the area, so they don't, they're not around very often. Um, but you know, uh, I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever thought about just saying, Hey, um, do you mind if I hunt your property just this weekend and kind of correlate that with a cold front or, you know, do a running gun in there or something and just ask for one day to hunt? Yeah. You know, I thought about it. Um, but ultimately I decided that, um, that it's not the right thing to do. I don't want to push things too far. Like they're really nice people. Um, uh, they've allowed me to do some things that let me shed hunt out there. Um, they've been okay with me tracking deer out there, things like that. Um, but I've always worried. I don't want to push it too far. Um, and I felt like that might be, I, no, not to say that I never will. And maybe if it comes up in conversation, um, or if they were to say, well, we're not going to be around at all in November. Um, and then it might be, would, would you care if I ever went in there? But I've just, um, I've been the type to always in this kind of situation, like there's a line somewhere and I've kind of drawn that line there, maybe falsely. Um, but, but that's where things are right now of the relationship. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I don't know. Well, the good, the good thing is it doesn't sound like anybody else is, is over there hunting that property, which is why he's still alive. Yeah, there there are some other guys that hunt like on the edges of it, around it, um, that know about the deer. So that he I mean, he certainly could get killed because there's a, there are this person like isn't this this area or this specific little spot isn't getting hunted a lot, but there's a bunch of people around the periphery that are that do know about the deer um, that I think probably are after him or in that area. So he's certainly not safe. Um, Do you think that any of the people are hunting this deer because you've put this story out there? Yes. Okay. I do know that there are some people who know of this deer because of my, because of where to hunt. Gotcha. Um, so that makes things interesting too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah. So, you know, what can you do? Everyone's got a right to hunt these deer. Everyone. Absolutely. I, I hope everyone has a good time and. You know, I would, uh, if someone else kills him, good for them. I'll be, you know, I'll be, I'll be personally bummed, but happy for that person too. Um, but you know, uh, two things. Number one, I'm running late cause I, uh, I'm supposed to be heading in to hunt some public land tonight again. Oh yeah, that's um, right. So I don't want to go too much longer, but, um, but I did check those trail cameras, like I told you and did finally get some pictures of him where you can see him face first, like head on. I don't know yeah. if you saw the pictures I posted online. I don't remember if I sent it to you or not. Um, I saw him. But he kind of just looks like he always has. He has not grown okay. very much. Um, he's maybe a little bit wider. He's got a big old body on him. Yeah, but, his, um, his body his body's noticeably bigger, man, I yep. think. 
Yep, he's definitely definitely a nice big old mature warrior. He's got you know his his telltale chunk missing out of his one ear, and then I noticed on close ups his other ear. He's got two notches out of his other ear too, smaller ones. But when you see a couple of the pictures that are up close, you can see these little knocks out of there. So, you know, between that, between the three chunks out of his ears, and he lost part of his main beam last year. He seems to be a fighter of a sort. So, um, you know, he's a buck that I, I wonder what he I wonder what kind of impact he has in the general area because I'm not getting like any other mature bucks at all on camera um or even seeing other mature bucks in past years in the last three years really um right. you know saw some like maybe a three-year-old but um but that's it and so it makes you wonder is he like one of those bully bucks who's just like really dominant keeps other air bucks out of the area and I wonder if if ever I do kill him if if the dynamic in the area will change because of that um so that'll be interesting to see too. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've had that experience happen firsthand and have talked with other guys where a, a buck like that gets killed. He's been dominant in that area for years. The, your area becomes a vacuum and it just sucks all the other deer into it. There's a, there's a jostling for position again for, for dominance. And then there's an increase in buck activity. Yeah, that's, that's what I think might happen too. So I hope that I can see what that looks like because I was the one to have killed Holyfield and, uh, and close yeah. it out. But, but yeah, the game plan as far as now, since I'm not getting any daylight photos, since I'm not seeing him when I'm scouting from my little hill is, um, that I'm, going to wait till that cold front comes and you know the 24th 25th 26th somewhere around that time frame and then i'm going to be hunting him pretty hard from that point through the first week of november um and we've talked about throughout the year i, I put up a bunch of different stands up this year to try to take advantage of some rutting activity that i didn't in the past i didn't have stands back in this one chunk of timber that i can hunt and so i never really knew maybe he was going back in there during the rut so i've got stands for that i've been much more careful about these front kind of food areas I've been staying out. So hopefully, you know, when I do start hunting, they're going to be full of does and he's going to come in and check those does instead of last year where by the time he started moving in daylight, the does weren't coming to the food plus cause I'd hunted three weekends in a row. Um, right. so some hoping for all those kinds of things. And in, in between now and then I'm going to hunt, keep hunting this public land and hunt some other private parcels. I have permission on around the state. Um, I never told you about my public land hunt last week. Uh, that was a just a debacle and a half. <laughs> I love those kind of hunts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it was awesome setup. Like, I was really happy when I got in there. It looked really good. You know, I think I told you this is that buck bed I'd found in the summer. Oh, yeah. And got set up in between it, coming off this little island in a swamp. And I thought I could catch something transitioning out to these ridges covering oak trees. Well, I was right about everything as far as, like, what was going on in there. Like, literally just like a floor of acorns, so many acorns, it was nuts. Yeah. So tons and tons of food in there. Um, and it was raining and wet and I got in there really good and quiet set up. I felt really good. Um, but didn't end up seeing a single deer. So it was disappointing. It could have been because the rain and the wind was supposed to taper off into the evening hours. And by the last hour or two, it was supposed to calm down and, and kind of chill out. And I thought they'd be up and moving then, but it kept on, like the wind kept howling and the rain kept pouring. So I wonder if maybe that just kept them down a little bit longer. I don't know. Um, but the debacle was trying to get out of there because to get back into this spot, like it is a long walk. It is really hilly. It's really thick. Um, so getting in there, I found like an old deer trail kind of deal that I was able to follow through some of this brush and briars and different things. 
Um, and you're going up and down and through all sorts of crap. But at, at times I was like crawling on all fours for long portions of time to get through stuff. Um, but I was able to get there. Okay. But when I was trying to get out after dark, you know, when you can't see anything other than what's right in front of your face in the headlamp, you can't see where like where the openings are or where a path might be or the best way to get through an area. So all I had was like my phone with Google maps up trying to like, okay, I know I need to head that direction. And I just kind of would go on a straight line and I couldn't get out of the place. Like I walked in circles for like over an hour, hour and a half, probably <laughs> like running into just walls, like impenetrable walls of crap everywhere. And I was falling over deadfalls. I rolled down a hill once I've got these huge bruises on my leg from taking the tumble. Um, again, I was like crawling through stuff. Um, and I got to the point, like people talk about when you get lost and like people panic and start like just running around like a crazy person. I was getting so frustrated that I was just like, just, I was just put my head down and just like plow through stuff. And it was raining and I have scratches all over my face. My phone fell out of my pocket at one point when I was crawling. And, and literally if I did lose my phone, I would have been stuck out there overnight. Like literally I, I was just walking in circles without the phone. There's no way I would have got out. So I had to just crawl around for several minutes, like just looking through all the brush and picking up all the leaves, trying to find my stupid phone. I finally did find it, but oh my gosh, it was so bad. So tonight I'm going back in there, um, but I'm going to mark my tracks like with my phone. I'm going to measure the actual path I take it or like, you know, GPS track the actual path so then I can follow the actual path all the way back out and hopefully have a better walk back to the truck. It was, it was so so bad. I got back bruised and bloody and soaking wet and pissed off and it wasn't good. So, well, good luck, man. I'm, I just, I don't know. It's in our blood, you know, you just want to be out there all the time now this year. I mean, it's, we wait for it and we wait for it and wait for it, man. I just, I just want to be in a tree stand period. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm right there with you. It's feeling like it. Like yesterday and today feels like good hunting weather. Um, it's that time of year. That time of year is coming up quick. So, I got one last question for you. You know the grind, the the ruts up coming up. The grind is about to start. Oh yeah. Do you feel like have you ever hit a point of almost like complete exhaustion or um, you know like mentally fatigued? maybe thinking about giving up or taking a day off when the, the weather's good or, or something like that. Have you ever hit that point of just like, I don't know, it's almost like it, it's playing a game with your head. Oh yeah. I've had that happen during the rut for sure. You yeah. don't want it to happen, but it, ha- it no. does, it does happen. No. And I think every year I'm always challenging myself to do a better job of pushing through those, those periods. Um, but it's, I think that's pretty human. I gotta believe, right. especially if you're if you're if you're the type that does marathon it and you push and you hunt a ton during that time period, it's natural I think to to get fatigued, to get worn out. And I don't know. Some guys say, I've heard some people say, you know what? When you get to that point and you're feeling totally worn down and you're losing like the edge and the fun in it and you're just whooped, sometimes it is good to take a morning or a day off and just like let yourself recoup because then when you get back to it, then you recharge, re-energize and you're more effective for the remaining days. Or then on the other side, some guys say, no, you got to push through because that day you take off, that could be the only day that you would have had the opportunity. Um, so I don't know what the right answer is, but, um, I try to push as hard as I can. Yeah. So I'm excited. I'm excited. The, the, the marathon, the grind for me is going to start 
middle of next week, and it's just gonna be game time for for three weeks. So are you are you going to uh, when are you hitting Ohio? Man, I don't know. I maybe maybe would do that in between now and then. Um, just there's been no good weather down there. I've just been waiting on that. Um, okay. but I don't know. I just ha- we we don't have as much going on down there as in past years. Like there's not a deer that I've been hunting for multiple years. There isn't like something that I'm like overly like stoked about. It's um yeah. so it's just when we get down there, we'll get down there. I'm sure it'll be great. I hope it'll be great. Um, I've just been kind of probably overly focused on Holyfield and everything. So I haven't spent as much time like internally in my head thinking about what's going on down there, but I need to get down there and figure it out and get after it. So, and then North Dakota at some point again, right? Yeah. That's, that's the whole other thing is I got to figure out when to fit in that trip. So in a, in a perfect world, if in a perfect world, if next week I get the cold front conditions line up, I go into one of these spots, kill Holyfield you know, if that could happen like the 24th, 25th, 26th, then I've got like two and a half, three weeks where all I need to do or that, you know, I could do hunt Ohio or I can go to North Dakota. So I'd probably go ahead and take a week long trip to North Dakota during that time period, hunt some public land and then come back and do a week in Ohio. But the Holyfield thing is just going to take up, take precedence over all those things until that comes to some kind of conclusion. So, right. Right. But yeah, to your point, I'm ready to get in a tree and like really get after it. So I suppose on that front, I should, uh, we should shut this down so I can go get in a tree. That's right. Well, good luck, man. And, uh, keep me posted. Thanks dude. You too. Hope you're able to get out in the woods this weekend. Your pregnant wife going to be able to drag a deer, help you drag a deer. You know, she probably would if I really wanted to, but (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll call one of my buddies instead. (laughs) She's been a trooper though. She's been a real trooper. She's doing, she's handling it really well. And, um, I told her the story that you told me the other day about how uh, Mac is waking up at 4.30 every morning and just pressing on your face over and over till you wake up. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, yep. that, that's going to be our future, honey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're going to enjoy these few more months of quiet while we got it. <laughs> and then the shit hits the fan. <laughs> All right, man. Let's shut this one down. I'm going to go hunting and then uh, hopefully have a good story to tell next time. And that is a wrap for episode number 177. A couple quick reminders. Number one, if you haven't been listening to our rut radio episodes, which are, you know, a regular episode of Wired Hunts coming out every week, but we're now doing two episodes a week. So you get your episode that you just heard now, plus a rut radio episode, and those come out every Wednesday. Make sure you're listening to those because in those episodes, we are getting real-time updates from different hunters across the country in different states about what's happening right now in the woods, what kind of deer behavior you're seeing, what kind of deer activity, what kind of rutting activity might be picking up, and then what kinds of tactics are actually working right now in these different places. So it's really helpful information. It's real-time. It can help you in your hunts right now. So don't miss those episodes, and, and I'd probably recommend listen to those first. As soon as those come out, listen to them because it can help you now. Um, number two haven't mentioned this in a little while, but if you haven't yet left a rating or review on iTunes for the Wired Hunt podcast, we would really appreciate that. It does make a difference. It is helpful. Thank you for that. Um, Speaking of ways you can show your support, if you would like to, we do have a lot of merchandise available. Wired Hunt hats and shirts and stickers. That's awesome. If you can pick up some of those things, it really helps us out. It supports the podcast and, you know, it's great. You can rep your you're being a part of the Wired Hunt Nation. So thanks in advance if you do that. Um, and finally, 
just want to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible as well. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, big thanks to all of you out there listening. I appreciate you tuning in. appreciate your time. Good things coming ahead here in the hunting season, so I hope you're all going to be able to spend some time in the woods. I wish you luck out there, and I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.